Welcome back to the Plowcast. We'll be speaking today with Plow contributor Gracie Olmsted about her new book, Uprooted. And then we'll be talking to another plow writer, Naran Vole, down in the outback of Australia about how she and her family transplanted there from New York 20 years ago. And this is part of the series of podcasts we're doing on our nature issue on the creatures. I'm Peter Momsen, editor of the Plow Quarterly. And I'm Susanna Black, Plow Senior Editor. Now, if you haven't already, you should really catch up on the first four episodes we did. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about place, belonging, and how to make a home wherever you are. So, Susanna, let's get to it. Well, we're very pleased to welcome Gracie Olmstead, um, Plow Contributing Editor, long Plow friend, uh, writer, and um, journalist whose work has been very inspirational to me for, man, probably close to a decade now. Uh, maybe a little bit less than that, ever since you were working at TAC, I think. We're really pleased to have you on, and we are having you on to discuss your new book, um, Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of Places We've Left Behind, um, an excerpt of which appears in our current issue. So, Gracie, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the idea for the book, how you came to write it, and where this all came from? Absolutely. I wanted to write a book about the farm community that I grew up in in Idaho and how the longer I was away from it, having moved to the eastern United States for college and then for work, I continued to feel this yearning and homesickness for the land I had left. And I realized over time as those feelings of homesickness grew and developed over time that much of it much of those feelings were um, related to the people who had died in that land, who had helped raise me, and who were so much a part of the fabric of my everyday life as a child. And in their lives, in their legacy of interdependence and givenness, I saw this pattern that I wanted to follow. And I also realized that by kind of picking myself up out of that fabric of interdependence that I had been a part of, I had isolated myself from a lot of that goodness. And so this book was an effort to get back into those rhythms, to understand them more fully, and to consider how as we lose those rhythms, um, many communities throughout the United States suffer as a result. You've talked, um, you talk quite a bit in the book about the idea of boomers versus stickers and that Wallace-Stegner distinction. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Wallace-Stegner once said that the United States has been torn up and rebuilt, has been torn up and rebuilt repeatedly by these two groups he called boomers and stickers. Boomers are those who move into a place and kind of pillage and exploit and extract for their own gain. And then whenever the goodness in that place, the natural resources, the health, the wealth dry up, then they move elsewhere. Whereas stickers move into a place and invest in it. They love it for the long haul. They don't leave when times get tough. They're dedicated to the well-being of that piece of land to that people to that community and um, I think that of course there's a lot of nuance that could be added there's a lot of people who stay in place because they're stuck 
not because they are really able to or willing to invest in it. There's lots of people who maybe have to be transient for work, but try to live like stickers wherever they are. But I think the two categories were really interesting for me because I saw that in the West, as in many parts of the United States, there's been a lot of extractive boom and bust cycles. And you can really see this pattern of people moving in, uh, depleting the natural resources and then moving on. And then there's this undercurrent of people who try to live as stickers and try to actually grow the health of a place and who stay there for the long haul. Could, could you talk, Gracie, a bit about some of those counterexamples? So the people who stuck and who left uh, more there. In one of our other episodes, we talked uh, with a, a farmer, an Amish farmer, John Kempf, who spoke about the importance of leaving the soil better than you found it to the next generation. Um, how, what does that actually look like in some of the stories you tell of, of the people who did that? I think there's a lot of people who may not actually be from a place, may not have been born there, but they move into that place with a sort of intentionality that Stegner, I believe, would have defined as the sticker mentality. Their desire is to, as you said, leave the place better than they found it, to be investing as much life and uh, givenness and service to that community and to that piece of soil as they can. Um, I think, though, as a lot of rural communities have emptied out, we see a lot of people who don't have the social or financial capital to leave that place behind and look for a job or a sense of well-being elsewhere. And so they might be living in place, but they're kind of stuck. Um, a lot of the resources they might have been able to draw on in order to feel like they were truly members of that place have already been lost. And so their ability to really flourish in that community is definitely an uphill battle. And I think that we see that happening in a lot of communities throughout the United States, which I then think influences our tendency to say, if you're going to actually make something of yourself or, you know, be able to achieve what you want to achieve, you have to leave. You can't do it in this community. Um, so I really wanted with this book to counter that idea and to say, no, we should be able to grow and flourish in the places where we grow up. That's important. And also to kind of identify some of the reasons why the people who live in a place might feel like they're stuck rather than like stickers. And so to give people a story of kind of the honor of the sticker way of life, uh, you know, I, I think of my own high school up here in upstate New York and how for many, the idea of your kids going to the same high school that you went to uh, could almost seem like a mark of not having really made it, right? That if you were, if, if you'd really did well, uh, you'd be bringing up your kids probably in a big city somewhere. And uh, it wasn't very honorable to come back, you know, uh, in your late thirty, late twenties, early thirties, and you know, oh, he's he's around again. People would say, <laughs> yeah, it's almost like moving home is seen as settling in a bad way. Um, settling being used there as a term for someone who didn't achieve what they could have, and usually we talk about success as a transitory thing, as a progression. You'll go far. You know, success isn't seen as something that can be embedded within your home soil. And yet, I don't think it always used to be that way. And that's why my great-grandfather was so important for me to talk about in my book, because he was born in, he lived in, and he died in the same probably 
10 to 20 mile radius. Um, he traveled. He, he was able to see a lot of places and to enjoy his larger community, but he really loved that place and he lived there and was seen, it was seen as an honorable thing that he loved that land and that he cared for it for over 90 years. Um, I've been reading Robert McFarlane's book, Landscapes, and in it he talks oh. about Nan Shepherd and her love for her small community and he says that in her, um, this kind of localism or parochialism, this love of place, one place, is not an instance of knowledge curbed, but knowledge cubed. And I love that. And it's just stuck in my brain ever since that this is really what I'm trying to get at in this book, that you can love a place for your whole life, keep learning and growing and maturing and doing good things in that place. And it's not making you less of a person or an intellectual. It's an instance of knowledge cubed, not knowledge curbed. Can you tell a little bit more of the story of grandpa, dad, and grandma, mom, (laughs) which I love that that's what you called your great grandparents. Just how did they come to be there? What was their life? What have you found out? What are your memories? Well, I never got to meet my grandma mom, and I've often thought that if I had, probably at least 50% of this book would have been about her, um, because so much of who she was was transmitted to me through stories, and I know from what I've heard that she was an incredible woman. But my great-grandfather was born in 1911. Uh, He was born in Emmett, Idaho. He grew up on a farm. And um, he was living at a time in the United States when there was a lot of economic desperation and struggle, and his family was not immune to that. And so from the age of seven or eight, he was working all sorts of hours on the farm. He was digging ditches. He was um, in charge of a four-horse team, actually, at age eight. And um, his life was dedicated to the farm. As he grew older, he thought about going off to college and spent some time at uh, the local Northwest Nazarene College that would have probably been about 30 miles away from his family's farm. But he always wanted to be a farmer. And so he actually came back to the land without finishing his degree and um, started a farm just down the road from his grandfather and father and stayed there um, and stayed there until his dying day. His wife was uh, the daughter of immigrants. She grew up in the heartland. And um, as the 1930s rolled in and there was a lot of drought and struggle, um, my grandma mom, who was the youngest of her siblings, convinced her parents that they should move to Idaho with her. And so she's an example I offer in my book of someone I call a transplant, someone who leaves their home behind, but with the purpose of truly stewarding and loving another place well. And so they moved to Idaho and stayed there ever after. She was incredibly involved in the local hospital, the church. She was always making food for families in need. She was constantly involved in... um, the local nursing homes and other ministries. And she was a beautiful singer. She had a a lovely singing voice. And so one of my favorite stories my great-grandfather used to tell about her was that she would always get called to sing for local funerals and weddings. But sometimes the phone calls would come in at the very last minute. 
someone dropped out or there was a sudden need. And so the local pastor would call her as she was baking bread in the kitchen covered in flour. So she would just dash to the car, drive to the church and sing behind a screen so that no one could see her disheveled appearance. But she would always (laughs) still show up and um, serve her local community in that way. I also heard, and there's so many details you can't include in a book, um, she made a very concerted effort to invest in troubled young people in her community. And there's more than one story of someone who was perhaps going down a path they shouldn't have been, who through kind of her motherly care and love started to um, change their habits and, and begin to go down a different path. So anyways, it's it's really fun to get to see all of the different ways they loved people. And as I worked on this book, I would call random people like a church secretary or a local farmer down the road and get an earful of stories about grandpa, dad and grandma, mom. Wendell Berry has been a huge influence on you and um, to a lesser degree on me. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Mr. Berry's work has kind of shaped your own approach to this stuff? I don't think I would have written the book without him. Um, I read his novella, Remembering, in college, and it was the story of a young writer who left home, became a journalist, was working, I think, on the West Coast, and then began writing about farming, and the stories of farming drew him home. And that's kind of the beginning story of Andy Catlett, whose life, character, and um, story is drawing on, I think, a lot of Wendell Berry's own life. And um, I saw the parallels with my own as someone who left Idaho for college on the East Coast, began to work as a journalist, began writing about farming as a journalist, and then saw how all the stories were drawing my own heart home. But when Wendell Berry writes about agriculture or about place, he writes from his own context and from his own perspective. And he writes in a very particularized way. He's writing about a specific region that he knows and loves well. And so his all of his perspectives on these issues of agriculture, place, stewardship, membership, are drawn from a very particular gaze that he's bringing to bear on this place that he's loved. And his attention is always drawn toward that place in Kentucky. And as I had uh, received a fellowship to work on a piece on family farming in America, I felt the ways in which my broad lens were impeding my ability to look clearly and well. And I wanted to draw my gaze back toward my own home community and to perhaps be able to offer readers a more particularized vision of how this, how these problems of, um, of just the loss of young people in place, rural brain drain, um, concentration in the realm of agriculture, loss of Tocquevillian institutions, and more, uh, were impacting one place and one group of people, and thus to kind of add flesh to some of the abstract ideas that we oftentimes um, use to talk about these, these issues. And so there's a lot that's left out In the book, of course, because it's about one tiny town and one tiny group of people. But in using that sort of lens to look at these questions and problems, I was hoping to follow very poorly in Wendell Berry's footsteps and to um, perhaps follow that directive that he gave me as I started my project, which was, if you're going to write about farming, 
do it from your own family's perspective and from your perspective as a member of that family. That's right. The book was originally going to be like a series of different studies, right? Of different places, or you were going to like go around to different farmers and talk to them. Do you feel like, um, I guess, what is the kind of more, what do you feel like you've learned that is more generalized, um, even as you learned it through doing the work on this one particular spot? Like what kinds of things are happening in America? Um, what, what are the patterns that you're seeing? I definitely see a pattern of division um, of kind of rural versus urban language that can make people feel cut off from each other, that can make it difficult to um, communicate communicate values and things shared in common. Um, and this is just something that I saw as the presidential elections happened as I talked to farmers about different issues over time. There was just this growing sense that there were strong divisions between people in different geographic areas of the country. I think some of the language around that can be stereotypical. So for instance, America's rural areas can be extremely racially diverse and that gets lost when we talk about the rural versus urban divide. Um, there's also areas in urban centers that experience um, a lot of poverty and rural poverty sometimes in recent decades especially has gotten talked about um, more, highlighted more. And so I, I think sometimes when we talk about rural versus urban, we, we play into stereotypes and we can hurt the conversation. <clears throat> but I do think that you can see ways in which politically speaking, when we look at the partisan language of our times, it has um, become very geographically entrenched. And um, I think I see, too, as I've talked to people, that there are many, many people who just want a place to live and love their whole lives. It's interesting how many people, no matter where they grew up, want to be members of a place, want to have community, want to feel as if they belong somewhere. I think that's a universal human desire. And um, insofar as we've kind of encouraged this idea of the extremely mobile um, cosmopolitan person who does not need roots, I think there's a lot of people who in their own personal lives would speak to their desire to live well in a place, uh, whether that's New York City or small town <laughs> Idaho or anywhere in between, just to love a place well is, is I think, a very universal human desire oftentimes that, that gets lost in our larger conversations. And so it's been really fun to have those conversations as people pick up the book and talk about it from their own perspectives. And I think, too, just the ways in which concentration have hurt small towns um, and just continue to make people feel very much divorced from the food that they eat, um, the money they are or are not able to make, um, the people they're doing business with. It's interesting how there's a sense of a lot of complicated intertwining ties that used to exist in this place that made it so that when you walked down the street, you were burdened with a sense of accountability and love and indebtedness that as that passes away, people feel more and more isolated. And I think that can both lend itself to a growing sense of loneliness and to a growing sense of I am not accountable to anyone, which 
I think can be rather dangerous um, when you're looking at the ways in which resources are used in a lot of these places. As you know, I've often and a couple of times in front of Wendell Berry, which was very scary, um, at a couple of the different Front Porch Republic conferences that we've both been at and spoken at, um, made the case that it's legitimate to be a localist in the city. Um, but in this book, you focus very much on the sort of agricultural aspect, on the idea of a connection to the land. Um, can you talk about like your early memories of of that land in particular, of, of that farm? Um, just give us a sense of what it's like. Introduce us to it. Well, I have to say first that I absolutely agree with you and have actually <laughs> quoted one of your speeches that you gave at a Front Porch Republic conference in conversations with people about this. You uh, talked about the the member of a city as a tinkerer, um, someone who loves a place well in the ways that they do the business of a city. And I've talked about you and Jane Jacobs as people who have shown me how important it is that we have localists and uh, Wendell Berry lovers in, in all of our cities. And I've loved living in cities too. But to get to your question, um, it's funny because, and I do mention this in the book, I was a very nerdy bookworm. I was not someone who felt, I don't feel like I always paid very good attention um, to my context until I left it behind. Um, I always wanted to be elsewhere and thought that the beauty of the English countryside, for instance, was far superior to Idaho's sagebrush and, and dry hills and mountains. And so part of writing this book was regrowing truly my love for the place that I left behind and seeing more of its geographic grandeur in a way that I don't think I really did when I was a young person. I remember visiting Craters of the Moon with my parents, which is the most fantastic and fantastical um, lava flow in southern Idaho, and just thinking it was the ugliest thing in the world. And now I want with all my heart to go back and to see it again with fresh eyes um, because I have a new imagination, I think, that's enchanted things that I didn't appreciate as a child. Um, However, I think some things that just stood out to me were the cleanliness and beauty of my great-grandfather's farm. He was meticulous in caring for it and all the outbuildings and even his, um, his ditches, as I note in the book, his irrigation ditches were very carefully kept in a way that was oriented toward beauty and order. Um, I always loved as a kid... Uh, when they harvested mint in the summer, my house was kind of surrounded by farm fields, even though we were technically in Fruitland, Idaho. Um, Agriculture is just kind of all around you. And so you could smell mint when they harvested it in late summer. And it was just on the air. It would waft past you as you were standing outside the house. And so that was one of my sense memories associated with summer that I lost when I moved to Virginia. And once again, didn't really realize how much I loved it until it was gone. Um, And I remember, too, uh, 
there were there were many times in which the food that we <coughs> ate at our table came from the farm, whether that was the beef that we had in our freezer and refrigerator or the corn that we would help my great grandpa shuck. I remember one time going out with my dad and actually helping um, harvest it at the farm. But for the most part, my great grandpa would harvest it all and then bring it to my grandparents' house. And we would just have a whole day of shucking the corn, carrying it into the house, um, boiling it with, with lots of sugar and salt, and then freezing it. And then that was what we would eat through through the winter and, and the next spring. So, You also talk um, a lot about sort of your, your grandparents, the sense of giving to the local community, just the sense of a sort of outpouring from the farm into um, to, to, to people who um, were their neighbors. And you tell a story about the time that your um, grandpa dad had a run-in with the DEA. Can you tell us that story? <laughs> yes. I actually did not hear this story until I was working on the book and probably halfway through with it, which is such a good reminder that sometimes there's these little treasures that people forget, or they may not even think of as a, that big of a deal. And then you hear it and you realize, no, this is this is a treasure. Um, so just a, a reminder to all those people out there who might think they've heard all the family stories, keep asking, keep digging, <laughs> who knows what you might find. But um, there was one day when my great grandfather walked up to his door and there were DEA agents outside, drug enforcement agency. They had aerial footage of one of his fields and they suspected he might be growing marijuana. For context, he was probably at least in his 70s by that point, probably closer to his 80s, and was this upstanding, very quiet member of the community. And um, he was absolutely horrified, I'm sure. But what he explained to them was that in all, in actuality, he had planted sweet corn in the middle of his field and then planted what's called feed corn, field corn in kind of the space around it. And the reason he did this is because in a rural con country area, um, a lot of passersby would see that this was sweet corn and they would stop and help themselves to the sweet corn. And so grandpa dad kind of set it back behind a, a facade of field corn in order to make sure that not, not all of it got stolen um, by the people who were driving by. But he did this, and, and this is something I try to emphasize in the book. He hid the sweet corn from passersby, not because he was stingy, but because this was the crop that he grew to give away. He would grow this sweet corn to give to members of his local church, to his friends, and to his family. And so it was a crop, a crop that he grew for them. And so that was the sweet corn, actually, that I then ate all through my growing up years. And... Um, I'm sure he showed them my my dad said he always wondered what their reaction was, whether they kind of scratched their heads and walked away. Um, but yeah, the, the, the crop that he hid was what I call his first fruits crop. There's a verse in the Old Testament that speaks of how the Israelites were supposed to dedicate the first fruits of their labor to the Lord. And I see his rhythm of planting something just to give away as a way in which he was seeking to do that as well. Thank you so much for <clears throat> joining us. It's been really lovely to talk to you about this book, and I know it's been a labor of love for you working on it. Um, we should also mention that it's published by uh, Sentinel, and it was edited by our mutual friend, Bria, friend of the pod, Bria Sanford. <clears throat> and 
everyone should go get a hold of a copy and read more of Gracie's family story. It is a great story, and it's also a story that, although it is particular, is happening all around the world. And I, th- I'm, I was so grateful to read this. Really enjoyed it. Uh, I think you know, kind of wherever you live, reading this particular story can give you an appreciation of what it means to become, you know, uh, a good sticker mm-hmm. where you are. So uh, thank you, Gracie. Thank you, guys, so much. For the second half of this episode of the Plowcast, we welcome plow writer Noran Bowl calling in from New South Wales and Australia. Welcome, Noran. Hi, Pete. Hi, Susanna. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. We were talking earlier in this episode with Gracie Olmsted about her book, Uprooted, and that's a lot about these two words, boomers and stickers, that come from Wallace Stegner. So there's kind of two kinds of Americans. There's the boomers who head out and go somewhere, and there's the stickers who kind of stick around and make a home where they are. And it kind of occurs to me, Noran, that you're kind of both, right? You, you, you boomed yeah. and then you stuck. So Noran and her husband, Chris, who's also written for Plow and is a used to be a plow editor, um, started out in New York and landed up in the outback of Australia like 20 years ago. Could you tell the story, Naran? I mean, what what was that like? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, it was it was really amazing um, and very difficult. We, um, Chris and I had both grown up in, um, me and in, in upstate New York, Chris in England, and um, we'd met and married over in the United States, and Chris had been editing for Plow. We were happily living our young uh, lives, and uh, our second son had just come along. And um, when we were invited to uh, move to Australia, to our fledgling community here at the end of 2002, and I was really excited. Um, I'd stayed in one place my whole life in upstate New York. Chris, uh, not so excited. But because of our um, joyous commitment to this adventuresome church, we uh, packed our bags and flew down here for what was going to be hopefully just a three-month stint to sort out um, some immigration issues and have a a go here. Um, And and we haven't left. That was 2002. Um, We've been back and forth a few times, but we arrived on on the back of the millennial drought. So um, as we got into smaller and smaller plains and flew further and further inland, Uh, The land looked increasingly barren. We could see fires. There were dead cattle. There were empty dams. Um, And I looked at Chris and I said, we are basically flying over a UNICEF calendar. I think this is Africa. And um, it, you know, there was just, I could just feel my blood pressure rising and it usually doesn't rise at all (laughs) as we got to this tiny little community. And, um, we were welcomed um, by about 40, 48 other brothers and sisters. That's all we were then, um, very warmly. Um, my little kitten, Jules, is just joining me. <laughs> um, and uh, every night we watched the hills burn. And I, and I, uh, those, the Newstead Hills were just opposite um, our main community. And we had a little fledgling community there as well. So it was very, very challenging. Um, but in the same in the same way was exciting. It was brand new. It was different. The people were new. The culture was was new. But everything that we'd ever known um, was gone. <laughs> 
even just in terms of the contrast of landscapes, um, you know, upstate New York, obviously incredibly sort of rich and lush and lots of streams everywhere. And then the contrast to Australia. Can you talk a little bit about what you've been doing with the land in the last 20 years? Like what's... Is it still burning? Is it still burning? Um, Yeah, well, um, like you said, I grew up in upstate New York and then we moved to Pennsylvania um for which is where we were living before we moved here just briefly but yeah totally different landscape lush forests and streams and we moved to uh the property that we um moved to had been a sheet property and when we purchased it it was on the back of the 91 flood so it had you know meter high grass but by 2002 that that uh, grass was gone um they'd been dumping fertilizer on this land for uh, generations and it was worn down to nothing. There were no trees. It was barren. It was just uh, a very dead looking landscape. And every time it rained, we would celebrate and we'd watch the water just pour down the hills and and take the few dams that were there with it. With it, it would break the dams and we we would cheer. We thought it was great. And the and the creek would just rush uh, past, full of brown, beautiful topsoil, taking all the topsoil with it. And um, we didn't understand what was going on with the land, except that it wasn't working and it was sick and it was wounded and it was telling us it needed to heal. And in 2007, after a lot of research and listening to uh, people who could do the land management or had studied old ways of land management, um, we began to plant trees and create contours to catch the water and to plant willows um, on the waterways and just to slow the water down. And that was, uh, 2007 was our second, we went into our second drought. So 2007 to 2009 was, was very dry, but we planted, we watered, we waited. And there were a lot of naysayers at that point saying, you know, guys, come on, that's not how we farm in Australia. Um, you know, you can't plant trees and move the cattle around in small bunches. That's not how it's done. Um, but that was also the year that Chris and I were given our third son, our, our, our youngest child. And I think that's uh, for me, both um, emotionally and spiritually, when I began to start saying, you know what, I'm not going back to upstate New York. Our church has asked us to live here and I need to start putting heart roots down as well. Um, and we began planting in 2007, we're I think well over 150,000 trees now on this property. Uh, we planted them in tree belts and every year that we planted and watered and waited um, the bird species increased the carbon increased in the soil the um, density of the soil thickened and healed and by the time we were entering in the 20, 2018 to 2020 drought um, the land was in a great position to handle that amount of dryness and you can see um, as you drive past our property on either side, there's traditionally managed properties. And you can see you could see that right in the drought that suddenly as you drove past Anthonia, there would be a lot of trees, there would be thick vegetation, mixed species cropping. And I'm not saying that to go, wow, look at us. I'm going, I'm saying that because we had to be humbled by our landscape in order to be, to learn from it and to be healed by it. And Yes, we did have to destock um, to some extent during the drought, but um, I remember um, 
there were some places where we wanted to add some more um, dams to the property during toward the end of the drought in the hopes that when the water, um, when the rain came that they would fill up. So we dumped them in our valley in December of 2019, which is when you were all seeing the fires on the, the news and it was crazy and people were evacuating from the coast, places that had never burned before. And as we dug those dams, they filled up with water of their own volition, clear, crystal clear, beautiful water. And I remember meeting my land, our land manager down there once and he was just standing there in awe of what he had been told the land would do if it had healed, the water table would rise. And it had, and it did. And um, I remember in that December, the, the, uh, the apple gums began to bloom again. And all the old Australians told, told us as they had um, when I arrived back in 2002 and the apple gums were blooming, don't worry, the rains are gonna come in the new year. And they did. And we're, you know, back in our amazing, uh, rich, green, growing, healthy land again. And probably in about a decade, we're going to get another one of these cycles. <laughs> you know, it was interesting. There was a fantastic article that I believe your husband, Chris, did with Johannes Meyer, who's responsible for the land management there in the Danthonia Bruderhof yeah, community. Yeah. Uh, in Plow, and we should drop a link to that. But one aspect to that 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 really struck me um, that came out of the interview that Chris did with Johannes was that a lot of these streams and creeks, uh, what you're actually doing is restoring an original landscape that was there before Absolutely. and was degraded by yeah. thoughtless use of fertilizer and and overgrazing. Mm -hmm. um, and so this. Yeah. These kind of hellscapes that you described kind of flying through as you first came to Australia mm -hmm. are actually not nature. They're they're creations of, of human human beings. You're totally right. And and we're also learning that, of course, the um, the indigenous um, bands that ro um, roamed Australia prior to um, white colonization um, practiced uh, fire manage fire land management essentially they would burn an area prior carefully prior to leaving so that the fresh vegetation um, would grow when they came back on their return because of a lot of our um, uh, flora is uh, doesn't regenerate without fire and that's a really interesting concept once again coming from America where you know you rinse and repeat with the, with the winter cycles and the and then the uh you know the rain and the snow and it you know the buds come out and, and everything blooms and the peepers start singing in the in the in the uh dams and everything and it, and away you go um we weren't used to that cycle at all um so we're, we're starting to learn also um the old ways again it's, it's actually not a new way it's an old way but it takes listening to and, and humility it's really sort of fascinating to think about the way that human beings can sort of be a part of a natural, like a necessary part of a natural cycle. It's almost like humans are symbiotic with the land itself. That ties into a piece that uh, is also in our new issue of Plow mm -hmm. uh, by Adam Nicholson, um, who lives in East Sussex. I believe you mentioned that's where you were born and, and where Chris grew up. Uh, and he's talking about the Sussex Weald and how actually human beings created this very kind of textured landscape uh, that now, as people are leaving, mm -hmm. 
and it's just kind of turning into this sort of suburban flyover area, um, you can still see the labors of people from centuries past who actually made the landscape what it what it is. He had the phrase handmade landscape, which I thought was just really, The hedges, the coppice yeah. trees, the sunken lanes. Yep. Uh, this landscape doesn't exist without human beings. Mm-hmm. I would totally agree with you. Um, place, place isn't everything, but it does humble and ground and connect us. And I felt that very strongly um, going to East Sussex and, and reading that piece again that you mentioned. It's just excellent. Um, I, I wasn't born there, but I went there when I was seven weeks old, so just about. <laughs> um, and I'd only lived there for one year with my family when my mother passed away quite suddenly. So she's buried in, in East Sussex, as, uh, um, as, so that's a very important part of my family legacy. Um, so I lived there from the time I was about 10 weeks old to, to two and a half, and my husband grew up there. Um, we returned as newlyweds, and you could feel the joyful presence of those who had gone before, the, the hedges, the roads, the the um, the coppices is very, very uh, strong. That that sense of other people have have protected and helped and healed and, and guided that landscape along. And when when I think about coming here to Australia, um, the irony uh, of this particular property is that we got this place from a family. Um, because the sense of place became too strong for them to bear. And that was because they lost their son um, when he was in in his 20s in a tragic climbing accident over in the Himalayans. And every part of this land spoke his name and they couldn't bear it anymore. And they chose us as their, as their, um, the, the purchasers for this property because they sensed we would understand that. And We've endeavored to honor their work, um, even though it used traditional methods, but we've endeavored to honor this work, um, their work by allowing this land to restore and to heal um, and be a place of richness um, and ecological richness for generations to come. And you get that sense from the piece um, that you mentioned about East Sussex. The picture that I'm getting just from the way that you're describing this is that people putting down roots in a place can do the same thing as when trees put down roots in a place. They can sort of hold it together and they can, they can, um, you know, be the ones to actually help enrich the topsoil and make it fertile again. Absolutely. And, and like I said, for, for us humans, we don't get to put down like physical roots like a tree does. We get to plant trees, but we have to put heart roots down. And I think until we did that um, as a community here, and accepted the land and its challenges and said, instead of fighting against it and wishing it was upstate New York or wishing it was Pennsylvania or oh for the green of England, uh, until we embraced the difficulties, made them our own and said, we're gonna work with the land and figure this out. Um, that's that's only when the healing could begin is when we've done that in our hearts. We've done the hard work in our hearts first. I don't know if that makes sense. But. All my life, I had a very strong sense of belonging to community, to my family, to my faith, um, my friends. Um, and only when I moved continents that I actually un- begin to understand that place mattered um, and that finding true connection to a place mattered. And I think that's what that piece you mentioned um, really brings across. Um, and that finding that place is very, very important to also finding peace. Your, your uh, Twitter stream Noran is sort of like an extended essay about belonging and place and also lots of uh, great recipes um some of which really good food photography yeah 
some of which we can cook here and and some of it we can't um no you're right my twitter feed has become an accidental love song to this land and um pete you and i grew up in the same place together with really really amazing teachers and mentors who taught us to look for the creator in in the in the wild in the wilderness in, in the beauty of nature and for me i think um yeah my my uh my spirituality, my prayer time is often out among the wild and in, in nature. And um, I love to share that with other people. And it also helps me, um, yeah, just to, to find the beauty um, in, in the very unique landscape in which I live is, has been an exciting part. And I'm, I'm privileged to share it via Twitter. So <laughs> thank you. Well, you know, some of those t- lessons that those teachers tried to instill in us, Ashley kind of only... I only kind of got them maybe like 20, 25 years later when I was like, oh, okay, now now I really get it, right? Um, I think you almost have to leave home, maybe go to college, get some knocks on the head, and then come back to where you, the kind of landscape you grew up in mm-hmm. to realize uh, what's there. But you obviously now are kind of fully in love with this piece of Australia, right? Uh, was it always that way? At, at what point, you know, did you kind of feel that sense of belonging? Because uh, obviously when you first arrived, you weren't sort of, it wasn't love at first sight necessarily, it sounds like. No, and yeah, wow. Um, it's been it's been quite a journey. Um, and I think um, it, it, uh, it can strike you a bit as a moonscape, depending on when you land here um, and what what season we're going through. So um, I guess it was probably after our son was born, I began to think, you know what, uh, I've, we've had a we've had a child here and um, we need to we need to start connecting with the land. We need to start accepting that we're here. But more than accepting, I wanted to learn to love it. And I think um an important piece of that journey for me has been um, our connection with the indigenous brothers and sisters that live around here and also um, north of Brisbane there's a a community church that um, has uh, uh, family roots down here in this area so we live on Gomeroy country or Camilla Roy it's often pronounced different ways Um, and listening to um, those brothers and sisters having them walk on the land with us, teach us about um, their people and their ways and their love for the land and their joy in in seeing what we're doing to help our land heal. That's been really, really important for my heart journey to come to terms with this unique landscape that we live in. And um, I think probably um, also in, in about, I think it was between 2013, 2014, when we had come back from sort of a sabbatical, extended sabbatical overseas, um, also to farewell my mother, who was nearing the end of her um, cancer journey. Um, I think I found that really, <clears throat> excuse me, found it really difficult to move back here at that point. Um, I set, felt a sense of profound loss over um, both of my parents' um, who had passed or my mom was, was, uh, had almost passed then, but I knew I wasn't gonna see her again, most likely. I had to um, farewell New York, had to farewell Pennsylvania again. And um, I went into sort of a deep place of sadness. Um, and I realized that um, there was a huge part of my heart was simply ungrateful. And we had 
we had built this place up to, um, yes, we planted a lot of trees and, and the land was starting to heal. We were growing our own vegetables. Um, we have the unique capability of being able to grow oranges and apples on one property, which is apparently quite amazing. We had a huge vineyard. Our sign business uh, was going well, but I was, I was dissatisfied. And what I began to realize um, was it was just a huge amount of um, dissatisfaction with the fact that um, I couldn't accept where I'd been placed. And I remember reflecting on it um, and began to um, realize that, you know, my, my one precious life was ending one second at a time. And by, the, by my inability to be happy where I was and where God had placed me, I was actually um, spreading that, that um, sadness and, um, dissatisfaction and and not allowing um, myself and also my children um, to flourish and you know just like a plant if you don't give it nourishment if you don't give it good soil to grow in um, it'll eventually shrivel up and, and die and I was I was depriving my own heart my own emotions of the opportunity to grow and thrive and live just because I was like why am I here why am I in this little desert um, and I think I've you know, through starting to just um, embrace where I lived and where God had placed me, and I began to be able to see the beauty around me, see the, see the, you know, the brothers and sisters I was living with, see the extended um, community in, in, in our area, and uh, things began to turn around. <laughs> how are you sort of teaching your kids to think about the land, and how are you seeing them, like, this is this is their home. These are their roots. Um, this is, you know, where they're going to have memories of. How are you seeing that happening with them? Such a great question, but children just put down their roots way faster than adults do. My kids loved it from the minute they got here. Um, and then of course our second, our, our oldest was two and our, and our second was 10 weeks. So this is all they ever knew. And while we raised them with an American consciousness, um, because they're dual citizens, they just loved it. And, um, our children have been involved in a lot of the tree planting um, over the years. So they have a huge, they, they can point out and tell you exactly what tree rep they planted, um, what, what year and how well it's doing. <laughs> so they, they um, you know, in the way that children are, they just connected with, with the land um, much quicker than we did. Um, love to learn about all the different, you know, nature things and, and all the ecology and, and everything. Um, and just delighted every year in the increasing biological diversity that we could see happening as the land uh, increased. So, I mean, I think this really is a great conclusion to our podcast today about, and it really answers the question that Gracie kind of raised at the beginning, how do you make home where you are? Yeah. And uh, Noran's also written another piece for Plow called Return to Vienna about another homecoming this time of a uh, Jewish girl who evacuated Vienna in the 1930s and came back for the first time 80 years later. And it, you know, there's, there is this kind of theme in what you've written, Iran, where home plays a big role. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, all, good luck uh, with the tree planting and uh, all the other stuff you're doing down there. Thank you so much. It's, it's been great to, to chat today. And thank you so much for inviting me here today. Woo! Mm -hmm.